University of Cambridge Festival of Ideas, the Electricity Policy Research Group brought together four formidable academics from the Cambridge Judge Business School to discuss the right and wrong way to go about cutting our carbon emissions and planning for our energy futures. Energy policies, the good, the bad and the ugly, had a quirky element too. The audience was allowed to vote on which policies they supported and which they didn't back. Each of the four expert academics put forward two propositions. Dr David Rayner, Director of the MPhil in Technology Policy Programme at Cambridge Judge Business School, thinks technology is essential for our energy futures and that we should put more effort into adaptation and geoengineering to reduce our CO2 emissions. Yeah, the issue here is not that we shouldn't be focusing on global efforts to reduce CO2 and other greenhouse gases. I mean, that, that is essential. That is something that is a project that we have as an international community for the, for the next century, really, at least the next few decades, where we'd like to see some serious action. The problem uh, is that, that it shouldn't be a zero-sum game. Uh, to date, we've focused almost all of our actions, all, all, almost all of our research and development funding on uh, dealing with reducing emissions, when in reality, the nature of climate change means that we will be facing increasing sea levels levels, uh, 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 rising temperatures uh, for not just decades, but for centuries to come. And we, we need to devote more and more serious effort, both at, at the research and development level, but also at, at the implementation level of dealing with, uh, dealing with these challenges of adaptation. And I would, I would argue probably more at the R&D level of geoengineering, these ideas of really tinkering with the planet. And really, we also looked, didn't we, at, at the sulfur dioxide emissions, uh, projected temperature change. These are acute problems that, that need solving now, that need a direction now to ensure we get the right policy in the future. Well, yes. I mean, historically, we've had the advantage that many of the environmental problems that we've had to work on have been difficult, but they've ultimately been tractable. So ozone depletion, we were able to phase out uh, you know, CFCs out of our aerosol cans. Uh, uh, sulfur dioxide, we were able to install scrubbers on power plants, move away from, from high sulfur fuels. C climate change is much more pervasive because the sources of these emissions are not just from the energy mix, they're from uh, natural sources like landfills, they're from um, methane from, from uh, livestock uh, and, 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 and uh, rice paddies. So, so the, the challenge of climate change is much, much, much more serious, much deeper. Uh, and any, any solution that we're going to have um, will, will inevitably be, be much harder. And, and again, more importantly, um, what we're talking about, uh, even under the most aggressive policy, is reducing uh, levels um, not below where they are today, but below where they might be. So things will get worse. What we don't want them to do is get much, much worse. So the, the, the real challenge is how do we deal in, in a world where the climate will continue uh, to, to become more challenging, we'll have more extreme events to deal with. Engaging China and the US on climate change debate is essential, says Rayner, and if we support carbon dioxide capture and storage, we can win the support of others too. 
The biggest challenge is that China and the United States are by far the biggest emitters of carbon dioxide, and they are also the two powerhouses in terms of coal. China mines three billion tons of coal per year. The U.S. mines one billion tons of coal per year. Uh, both countries are very dedicated to a notion of energy security. Uh, that means promoting homegrown indigenous energy. To imagine that we are not going to use the, literally in the case of the United States, hundreds of years of coal reserves, or in the case of China, about 100 years of coal reserves, is, is really, uh, unfortunately, not realistic. And so what we need to do is, is come up with energy policies that will allow these countries to continue burning coal and engage in an effort to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. And you're almost saying that's an equalization policy between the, the West and the developing country, a huge developing country like China, in, in, the, in the sense that it, it won't jeopardize relationships and, and it will be fair. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big challenges is just uh, forget economics, forget everything else. You just think politically. Um, if, if you are in danger of uh, losing losing your job, losing the entire sector, the type of opposition that arises, and I think we saw that here in this country in the, in the United Kingdom with, with the disputes over coal mining, uh, will, be, will be incredibly painful and difficult. Um, so if there are something like five million odd coal miners in China, we need to have a strategy that, that says that they will have a job for, for many years to come. It might not be the, the, we might not think of these as the best sorts of jobs, but th this is a major part of, of, of the Chinese economy. And what's not going to happen is that they're not going to be relying on cleaner natural gas because they, China doesn't have the resources there. And so, so for, for China to engage on an issue like China, climate change, it is essential uh, that they have the ability to still make use of of, of uh, again, the, 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 the energy source in which they are richest, and that, that is coal. A national policy framework to promote renewable electricity is essential if we are to meet the EU's carbon reduction targets, says Dr Michael Pollitt, Assistant Director of the Electricity Policy Research Group at Cambridge Judge Business School. Well, I think the, 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 the first statement that I had, which was um, about uh, you know, national policies to promote renewable e electricity and whether they were an effective way to achieve um, carbon reduction targets, that, that first statement was really trying to unpack the two major EU-wide energy and climate policies that the UK has signed up to. Um, so the first one is the um, emissions trading um, scheme where um, CO2 from the electricity sector and other energy intensive sectors is capped um, at the EU level and that um, cap is binding and it results in a positive price for CO2 emissions which any emitter who's subject to the scheme must pay. And then there's the other policy which we've signed up to which is the renewable energy directive and the renewable energy directive sets um, national level um, targets for the amount of primary energy that must come from renewable sources. And the UK has signed up to a 15% target by 2020, currently at 3%. And what I was trying to get at was these two policies actually conflict with one another. 
You said they were at war with one another. Yes, um, because, of course, it's quite fashionable for um, politicians to claim that the renewable energy um, target is a uh, climate policy, and actually it's, it's to do with reducing CO2. But actually, in, in reality, CO2 emissions are capped by the emissions trading scheme from the electricity sector, and that means that any more renewables... Uh, electricity doesn't actually reduce um, CO2. All it does is it um, reduces the tightness of the cap, reduces the price of CO2 permits, and in effect, um, people who were burning uh, gas in their power stations switch to burning coal, and the total amount of CO2 that's produced from the electricity sector remains the same. Early stage, low-carbon energy technologies should be subsidised. Pollitt again. It's worth pointing out, I think, that the subsidies that we're talking about are essentially electricity customers paying more now for electricity from these early stage technologies in the hope that the price of electricity from these sources will come down in the future. So it's not a a subsidy that's primarily coming from the government in most cases. It's actually a subsidy that's coming from electricity consumers. And in that sense, what what electricity consumers are actually paying for is they're making an investment up front, which they hope to earn a return from in terms of lower prices in the future. And what I was arguing was that um, early stage technologies should be subsidized because they have the prospect of substantial amounts of learning um, by doing and by um, the the, the benefits of strategic um, deployment, which mean that um, as we deploy more of these technologies, the cost of them comes down and we have the prospect of of, of lower prices in the future than we would otherwise have. But, But the bad reasons for subsidies, come on, green jobs, we we need this technology... Yeah, well, of course, any subsidy has risks associated with it. Um, and we're, the, the argument that's sometimes made for subsidies to renewable electricity are this, is this green jobs argument. And, of course, it's important to knock that on the head. That is not a good argument for, um, uh, for green technologies because green technologies tend to be very capital-intensive. They involve huge amounts of upfront costs. They don't actually have many jobs associated with them. I I mentioned the the offshore wind industry. Even if we subsidise it to the maximum likely extent, which could be up to £2 billion a year in the UK, we only create about 80,000 jobs in in, in some of the best scenarios. And that would be £25,000 a job per year, which is well above... The, uh, the the cost per job that would be used by a regional development agency, for instance, to evaluate whether it was worth subsidising a job. So these are very expensive subsidised jobs and it wouldn't be worth subsidising them on, on the job basis. Banning new gas-fired power plants may be a solution for security of supply and climate change reasons, say some. But others disagree. Dr Pierre Noel, the Director of Energy Policy Forum at Cambridge Judge Business School. Well, it's not my conclusion. It's a statement that uh, I was, I mean, it was my role to, 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 to address tonight, whether it's right or wrong, um, as a policy. So two reasons, really. The first one is this idea that if we are to address climate change uh, seriously, we should ban 
any uh, source of electricity that is not carbon-free. You know, we want to move in the long term to a carbon-free electricity system, so let's start right now and, and move away from everything that is not zero carbon. I dispute that. I think gas is much less carbon-intensive than coal and provides then a cheap way to decarbonize to some extent, that, and we should not miss it. The second thing is... Um, Politicians in this country have become very exercised about uh, gas supply security and the rising dependence or reliance on gas imports. And I think this is, a, this is an inflated threat, which I wanted to address too. And, and in terms of the climate change debate, how does it feed into that, the banning of the new gas-fired power plants? Well, the idea for the people who defend this this. Uh, this view, again, is we sh why, why, why don't we ban everything that is, that is not carbon-free? So, you know, we can do renewables, we can do nuclear, we can do carbon capture and storage. Why should we continue to let either coal or gas emit carbon in the atmosphere if the long-term goal is to, is, is to have a zero-carbon electricity system? And the uh, rational answer to that is, well, gas will not give you a carbon-free system, but what it may give you is affordable decarbonization in the short and mid-term, which does not prevent you from going into deeper decarbonization in the longer term. A draconian approach to energy security would be to limit gas exports to continental Europe. Noel again. Well, yes, this is this, uh, again, this view which is widely shared among politicians that... Okay, you know, investors have built those pipelines between the UK and the continent uh, with a view at the time to bringing gas that was, you know, in ample supply here uh, to the continent. Uh, and now the UK basically imports a lot of gas that is re-exported to the continent. And some politicians get uh, worried about that, that it somewhat reduces the security of supply here. And I wanted to to address that and to essentially uh, show that, that, that this is not true. Uh, it is good for the security of supply of, of, of continental Europe, but it is also a major reason why the ability to trade with Europe is a major reason why people would build new import facility in the UK as opposed to Spain or Italy. And, and really, uh, you're also talking about letting the gas flow, um, that, that in fact this is going to help us in the longer term? Gas, gas is, is uh, one of the only good news around uh, in the energy and climate reality around us, or climate policy uh, field. So we should not, uh, for wrong reasons, penalise gas. Uh, we should, on the contrary, welcome this opportunity to go in the right direction at relatively uh, low cost. Uh, much lower cost than, than anything else we've tried so far, be it offshore wind or even onshore wind or CCS nuclear. Uh, we should welcome that and we should not let uh, uninformed views about security of supply prevent us from benefiting from the new situation in the gas market. There are more than 400 nuclear power stations throughout the world, but new policies are needed to encourage more investment and competitive energy markets can deliver these, says Dr William Nuttall, Assistant Director of the Electricity Policy Research Group 
at Cambridge Judge Business School. The intention really is this, to say that uh, over the last 20 years, uh, the United Kingdom has done much to build competitive energy markets. And right now, for reasons of climate change and energy security, um, there's much interest in the possibility of building new nuclear power stations. But the last time we did it, we didn't have an energy market. We had, for electricity, uh, essentially central planning. But the government tells us today that the government does not build power stations. So if the government doesn't build them, can the market build us nuclear power stations? I think it probably can. The market for nuclear power needs adjustments, says Nuttall, and we should hand energy policy to the European Union. Yes, the other uh, suggestion I put forward was that actually Britain should hand its energy policy over to the European Union because um, the 27 member states of the European Union retain their own local policy for the electricity generation mix. So in some countries, uh, nuclear energy is a source of national pride, whereas in others, it's essentially illegal. And essentially, I regard that as somewhat bizarre. It, it, it is bizarre, but, but do, do you think that, that, that nuclear, perhaps now, because all the talk is of the green energies, uh, the green energy technologies, do you think perhaps in the main it, it has had its day? I think that um, saying it's had its day is maybe a twist on the notion that it's a mature technology, and I think there's nothing wrong with being a mature technology. Uh, while conceding it is mature, I, uh, I don't want to say that there's no opportunity for further research and development. There most definitely is. But the main point I'd like to make is that um, more than 400 nuclear power stations are operating around the world. This is a technology that has been made to work and is known to work. And the challenge is, as I mentioned in my first statement, to make sure this can be done in a competitive economic framework. And, and it can be, because of course the one thing here with public uh, sector expenditure cuts it is can we afford things, lots of big projects, big ideas, uh, particularly involving capital investment, are being put on ice. But you think that there is a competitive market for nuclear energy? I think that the prospect of actual treasury subsidy for significant parts of uh, electricity policy is, is, is not on the table for many reasons, including the uh, constrained economic times. But there's always been the possibility that um, electricity consumers can be paying for uh, major investments through their bills. And frankly, uh, every, every family in the country is an electricity consumer. So, so uh, whether it's paid through taxes or through electricity bills is, I suppose, at the consumer uh, perspective, essentially the same thing. Um, my, uh, my sense is that um, decisions and, and implementation of decisions to build large energy infrastructures, well, they used in the 50s and 60s to be made by government and nationalised industries. And I don't detect any need to return to that for nuclear power. But the market we have at the moment is not delivering um, the kind of balanced and uh, technology-neutral incentives that nuclear power needs. And so what's the solution to that? Well, I think one of the things that, that, that should be done is to, if we do believe in a carbon price, that it should be stable and it should be substantial. Uh, I think that the 15 euro a tonne CO2 price right now is, is insufficient to incentivize the changes that need to be made. But equally, um, the policy driver of energy security, which is essential and vital, one struggles to bring that into a market framework. Uh, there are various ideas in play, and I think, for instance, um, allowing prices to spike to provide a, a spur to investment, uh, or admitting a capacity payment, which is money for having a power station, not just for generating. I think these are, these are kind of policy adjustments to the market, which would not destroy the market.
If we then move on, you mentioned your second statement, Britain should hand energy policy to the European Union. I mean, could we really get rid of all those 27 energy ministers and have one energy supremo? Wouldn't the lobbyists have a field day? Well, I think that, you know, it is perhaps slightly ironic that, you know, here I am as a a British citizen uh, talking about a very Euro-federalist notion of of handing powers to Brussels. And I I know the uh, coalition government has a position exactly opposed to that position. um, but but I, I, I see merit in it. I think at the fundamental level, um, it's not a policy that where this, um, forgive the uh, euro word, subsidiarity is needed. Uh, because I see that the, my sense is that global climate challenge is global and not regional. And uh, increasingly, the challenge of energy security is about the European Union as a whole importing uh, energy resources from the rest of the world. So this is a, an area where Europe could speak so much more powerfully if it had one, one voice. Um, and, you know, we should recognise that in many, many other areas, uh, the member states have handed their sovereignty over to, to Brussels, including this country has. And I, I just think that the case for doing it for energy is at least as strong uh, as in some other areas. Strangely, there were no winners or losers in the energy policies, the good, the bad and the ugly festival of ideas debate at Cambridge Judge Business School, just a significantly more enlightened audience. Dr. Rayner, Dr. Pollitt, Dr. Noel and Dr. Nuttall again. Yes, it is entertaining how how the public reacts. And I I think uh, maybe as an academic, I try and be a bit more detached. I'm happy to deal with problems that I see as ugly. Whereas I think maybe understandably, the public would like maybe something that's clearer. And maybe they were, if, if they were convinced that there was uh, a kernel of, of uh, a heart of gold, as, as, as Stephen Littlechild referred to. Maybe if, if, if there was that sense of something positive, they voted for good rather than, rather than ugly. Um, I, I believe in a bit of healthy competition between countries in terms of uh, developing more effective policies such that good policies can rise to the top and then get adopted more generally. Um, but, um, you know, clearly this is an area of active debate on many of these statements that we were making, and it was good to see that uh, the, the different sides of the debate reflected in both on the panel's comments and from the audience. Gas allows us to go in the right direction at low cost. This is, this is the bottom line of it. Gas will not take us to where we have to be in 30 years' time or 40, 50 years' time. That is true. But uh, it allows us to make the first step at a much lower cost than basically anything else. Uh, so we should not miss this opportunity. Yes, I think the one that struck me the most was how um, the audience went from a kind of, uh, as one might expect, moderately Eurosceptic position to actually being uh, attracted to my proposition that we should hand energy policy to Brussels. In the end, there were no losers, only winning propositions. Mm-hmm.